Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled, outdoor adventure with Mandela on the Trail 1033. We are in the studio with Pratik Patal. Pratik is the founder of the African Wildlife Trust. Pratik, thank you so much for coming to Missoula and talking to us talking at the university and at the Roxy Theater about the African Wildlife Trust and what's going on in Africa right now. We are losing our elephants. Thank you, Mandela, for inviting me to speak at this wonderful radio show. It's a great opportunity for me to be here in Missoula, Montana, and I look forward to speaking to you about the crisis in Africa on elephants. Pratik, where did you grow up, and how was outdoor adventure a part of your childhood? Mandela, I grew up in a small park about 120 kilometers, about 60 miles from Arusha town. It's called Tarangiri National Park, and it's home to about 2,500 elephants. My father was the founding person that created this national park. He was a game reserve, and in 1968, he was driven by his passion for Africa and its wildlife. So he kind of found his way in this park, and in those days, it was all hunting game hunting, but he found his way in this park. He first built the first photographic camp in 1969 called Tarangiri Safari Lodge. And the word is that I was conceived in Tarangiri, so I'm very proud of that history of mine and that of my parents. So I was born in 1969. My father built the first camp in Tarangiri. It was called Tarangiri Safari Lodge. I grew up in Tarangiri at a very young age, played in the rivers in Tarangiri. It's an incredible park. It's beautiful. You have rolling hills, you've got valleys, and you have the meandering Tarangiri River that flows through there. And during the dry season, it's home to 2,500 elephants, six or 7,000 head of buffalo, 15,000 wildebeest zebra. So it's got a lot of game, a lot of cats. It's one of those parks where you see a lot of leopard in a given day. You know, it's not unheard of to see between uh, five and six leopards in a day. It was an incredible experience growing up in Tarangiri National Park. My father walked most of this park, put in all the boundaries, what you see today. And in 1970, he then requested then President uh, Malimu Julius Nerere to have this park gazetted. And so in 1970, this park towards the end was gazetted as a national park and one of the first and few national parks in Tanzania. And so I had the privilege of growing up in there. It was completely wild. No kids around, no community around. I think we had 34 game scouts or rangers, if you want to call them, that were responsible for the protection of this national park. I remember my father telling me stories where he would walk and the caterpillar would follow him so they could cut roads and make roads in the park just to open up the park. It was also home to the highest density of rhinos in northern Tanzania, not in Africa, but in northern Tanzania, where within 16 kilometers of driving into the park, it was normal for you to see between 10 and 15 rhinos. And unfortunately now, we don't have any rhinos in the park. They were all poached out. So it was very sad. In the 60s and 70s and early 80s, that park was one of the few parks that was very badly hit during the poaching crisis. But regardless of the history, it was just an incredible opportunity growing up in this park. And I think my love for adventure and travel and knowing the unknowing grew from growing up in Tarangiri National Park and playing in those rivers. And I love watching those elephants and herds of buffalo come in for drink of water. 
Pratik, for someone listening who's not been to Africa, can you take them there and tell them what it's like after it has rained and the sun comes out and you're walking alone and it's just you and the animals? You know, Africa is special. And I think every part of Africa is special. I'm 45 years old, just to give you an idea. And every time I go back into a park, there is just something new, interesting, exciting to explore and see. And growing up in this park, we have seasons and the seasons determine the, the movement of game. Just to give you an example, I grew up in the Serengeti, partly in the Serengeti. And just to see the shadow rain, you know, we have two rains. We have the rain from the Indian Ocean that comes in, which is our long rains. And then we have a shadow rain of Lake Victoria, Africa's biggest lake. We pick up a shadow rain in the months of October. And it's such a special time for me because I see this little cloud build up. And you progress through all the parks like Tarangiri, Gorongoro, southern Serengeti. And you get to the western part of Serengeti. And there the savanna is completely dry arid, you know, the animals are looking tired, they're exhausted, they're just dying for some water and for some rain. And suddenly when you get to the western part of Serengeti, you see this little cloud build up. And when you see this rain moving through, it's just an incredible feeling because it kind of moves slowly. You can see it coming and it moves through. And you see Thompson gazelle, Grand gazelle running in front of the rain. And it's such an incredible sighting. And you can see this dark cloud just build up and it sort of becomes hazy and it grows through. There are special moments in Africa like that that you really enjoy and you love seeing. Going back to Tarangiri, I just love seeing the seasons transpire from the short rains to the long rains where everything is dry, everything is worn out, literally. And I use the word worn out in a positive way. The elephants have consumed all the bushes and shrubs. The grass is down to roots and shoots left in it. And they're going, oh, my God, another day in Africa, you know. Where are we going to get some water? Where are we going to get some food? And then you get that nice rain that comes through. And within a week, it turns green. You have this little carpet that is building up there. And suddenly you have everything. The elephants trumpeting and excited, you know, wallowing in the mud. You have the wildebeest kicking the hills. The zebras barking. It's just an incredible feeling of excitement and the joy. What happens is when you have the wet months, you have the coats of these animals shining and glowing. And towards the end of the dry season, they're like exhausted, dehydrated. The grass is just palatable. There's no moisture. There's no nutrient value, but they just consume just to fill their bellies. But you can see that the coats, they lose condition. And as soon as the rain comes in, then there's this whole excitement of joy, a feeling of happiness, a feeling of tranquility that you see and an essence of peace in the bush. You know, the birds are calling, swimming in those little pools. It's very exciting to be there. And I certainly encourage a lot of people to come out to Africa, not just to Tanzania. I mean, you know, Botswana, Zambia, Zimbabwe, South Africa, Namibia, Kenya. They're just all incredible. And everybody has a special spot place in Africa that they grew up. And kids like myself that grew up in the bush, it's an incredible experience to grow up in the African bush. It's something that we would love to share with all of you. The feeling is that of pure joy. I'm out of words right now. There's just a lot of joy, a lot of peace, and a sense of belonging in the African bush. We are in the studio with Pratik Patal, who is the founder of the African Wildlife Trust. He grew up in Terengeri National Park, which is in Tanzania. And Tanzania is home to hundreds of thousands of animals. Some people know it as the crater of life. And also, this is a place where Jane Goodall has done a lot of work. And you grew up with her son. Tell us about that. At the age of five, I moved to Serengeti. Not exactly Serengeti. It's right on the border between the Gorongoro Conservation Area Authority and the Serengeti National Park. We know we have a little classification with our parks. 
My father was privileged to have bought a beautiful camp called Ndutu Safari Lodge from a former Australian gentleman by the name of George Dove. And so I moved to Ndutu, and in Ndutu, I had the privilege of running and living to Hugo Van Lawick and Jane Goodall, who had the camp, you know, a few kilometers from the main lodge, and their son, Grub. So, yes, I spent a lot of years in the Serengeti. Hugo is an incredible man. He's really put Serengeti on the map for Africa and the world with his films on wildlife, an iconic a mentor for me. Jane Goodall, I can't say enough about this incredible lady who spent her life studying chimpanzees in Gombe National Park. Today has become an iconic figure and also a mentor for me. She is truly a great conservationist and one of Africa's heroes. When you grow up in a camp in Africa, there's not a lot of kids around. So when you finally find a buddy of yours that lives next door, that's your friend. That's your mate. It's not like going to school and meeting 50 or 100 other kids. You know, it's just you and him. It was always nice spending time with Grub. We had amazing playtimes together. We used to walk in the bush, do all the naughty things that we're not supposed to do. He lives in Dar es Salaam, so he's not very far from where I am. I live in Arusha, so it's about an hour's flight, and I connect with him from time to time. He's a great fisherman. His love and passion for fishing has grown over the years. I remember one time when Grub got very sick because Grub used to like collecting chameleons. And one of our childhood memories is that he would end up with all these chameleons, and we'd go around walking in the bush. Really naughty boys. We shouldn't be doing that on our own. But we would go into the bush. Then we would go look for chameleons, and Grub would have a box, and he would put them in this box and have them in his tent. But, you know, these are found memories that you cherish today growing up. I'm glad that my path crossed with Grub and Hugo and Jane growing up in the Serengeti. Pratik, you also had a juxtaposition like I did growing up. I went back and forth between South Africa and Montana. You grew up in Tanzania, and you went to boarding school in England. That's correct. Yes, I went to Kingsbury High School in England, so age 11. But a lot of the kids growing up in Africa, they grew up in the bush, will end up in boarding school in England or elsewhere. Going to boarding school was, one, my first time in England. You know, I didn't know what an escalator was. So when I saw my first escalator, I didn't know how to hop onto it. And then I lost <laughs> my balance. So I really felt stupid at that time. But thinking about it right now, you know, we take escalators for granted. But when I first saw my first escalator, I was excited. And I was thinking, well, how do I get on this one? And how do I get off that one? Wonderful. We're in the studio with Pratik Patal, the founder of the African Wildlife Trust. Pratik, let's play a song. Let's play a song that reminds you of Africa. Well, I would like to start firstly with Freddie Mercury. Some of you may not know, but Freddie is a Parsi and was born in Zanzibar. And so I'd like to play this first song just to take you back to Tanzania. And just so you know that, you know, some famous singers also came out of Tanzania. And it's basically, I want to be free. And it's also dedicated to African elephants who would like to be free. Back to Mandela and the trail less traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. We are back in the studio with Pratik Patal. Pratik is the founder of the African Wildlife Trust. Now, we're going to bring some awareness tonight to those of you listening who might not realize that every year, 25 to 35,000 elephants die in Africa. 10,000 alone die in Tanzania, which means that one-third of Africa's elephants are dying in Tanzania. Now, if those figures keep up, in 7 to 10 years, there are going to be no elephants left in Africa. Pratik, this is a global problem. It's not Africa's problem because it's not just elephants that are suffering. Rhinos are as well. Tigers, lions, and leopards are starting to see the effects. So it's not just Africa's problem. This is a global issue. 
Just to give you some history and background, in 1930s, we estimated between 5 and 10 million elephants that roamed the African continent. In the late 70s and 80s, during the poaching crisis at a peak, the world reunited and we had a ban placed in 1989. And for 10 years, we debated and we thought about where we were going to go. But in 2008, we had a one-off sale of 102 tons of ivory that came mainly from South Africa, Botswana, Zimbabwe, and Namibia. What happened in 2009, it triggered off the illegal ivory trade and the demand for ivory from mainly China and some Southeast Asian countries like Thailand. Japan in the 60s, 70s, and 80s were predominantly the main markets for ivory. We saw a change in dynamics in 2008 where the demand for ivory was coming from China. Just to give you an example and some figures, we currently estimate that the African elephant population is between 400 and 450,000 elephants. Now, saying that, we're currently conducting a population census on the African continent to determine what exactly is our status as far as the elephant is concerned. Now, we have two species of elephants. We have the savanna elephant and we have the forest elephant. We estimate that 60% of the forest elephant has already been decimated. So when you think about 450,000 elephants, and hypothetically, maybe there might be 500,000 elephants, if we're losing approximately 30,000 elephants a year, we estimate with the current trend and the continuity and the demand from China that between seven and 10 years' time, we will have no elephants left on the African continent, and that will be a real shame for Africa and the world. So the problem is not just an African problem. China said that it was not their problem, it was an African problem. But the reality is it is a global problem and it is everyone's problem. Isn't it common that in China, the belief is that elephants shed their tusks when the truth is that the tusk is like our tooth and you can't just go around and cut it off and the elephant's going to be fine or it doesn't fall off. It goes right into that very important nerve and that is also the elephant's self-defense. That's true. And there's a myth in China and there was a belief for some time that the elephant tooth just fell off and people walk around and harvest elephant tooth. And that's not true. An elephant tooth is similar to that of a human. It has a nerve. It's very deeply embedded into the skull, almost 18, 19 inches into the skull. So we can't just go off hacking elephant teeth or trimming. You know, some of the interesting questions that come across is, why can't we just cut them and will they regrow? They don't regrow. And once you cut them, it's like taking a chainsaw or a saw and running it on your tooth. You can feel the pain. You can feel the sensation in there. So it's the same feeling for the elephants. Yes, we can trim their tips, and you've seen some evidence in Asia and India where they trim the elephant tooth, but there is a nerve in there. So when you go beyond that point, you actually damage the tooth. For African elephants, it's very important for them to have their teeth because that's the only defense mechanism that they have. They rely on it to strip bark off trees. They rely on the, the tusk to dig out minerals from the ground, to open up water holes, etc. So when you suddenly take or cut their tooth away, you leave the species defenseless not just from a defense point of view, but you also are responsible because in the very, very dry months, they rely on the moisture from the baobab trees and they strip the bark from a lot of the acacia trees. And so once you take that away, they lose that tool that they use to peel this bark off the trees. The elephant tooth plays a very important role for the survival of the species. Now, Pratik, let's talk about the fact that we have poachers, but a lot of the poachers are actually funded or actually are militia groups that are selling ivory to China to fund civil wars and genocide in the African continent. And that's the reality that you folks in the U.S. and the world need to know. We talk about genocides in Rwanda. We talk about the M23 rebels. We've seen the, the clash between the Tutsis and Hutus. We've seen the Janjaweed in Darfur. But let me just tell you that there is an elephant genocide that's going on right now in Africa that has gone unnoticed for a long time. 
you look at the drug trade, you look at the human trafficking trade, you look at the arms trade. Well, the illegal wildlife trade in Africa is worth over $10 billion. And it's fueling militant groups. We've seen the emergence of Al-Qaeda, Al-Shabaab. We've seen uh, SPLA, which is the Sudanese Liberation People's Army. We've seen LRA, Koning. For a long time, the world has spoken about blood diamonds. Well, there's something now known as blood ivory. And unfortunately, the illegal wildlife trade has gone unnoticed for over a decade. And these militant groups rely heavily on the illegal bushmeat market and now on the elephant trade and the rhino trade to fund their wars and their genocides. And currently, as we speak, we've seen the crisis that the world is facing now with ISIS. It's fueling militant militia groups globally. That's destabilizing not just the African continent, but it's also destabilizing the world itself. I mean, Europe and America now have to worry about the repercussions. We've seen 9-11. We certainly do not want to see another 9-11 here in the U.S. nor in Europe. We have a genocide that's going on and the elephants are being decimated. And whilst I'm speaking about elephants, just let me give you a rough background on rhinos. South Africa currently loses just over a thousand rhinos a year in a fenced, well-protected area. If we can't protect them in a fenced area, do you really believe we can protect them in free-range land and game reserves in the rest of Africa? And we rely greatly on converting poachers because they are a source of intelligence and they lead us to where and who's dealing with ivory and where they're selling it and who's buying. Just to give you something to think about, in 2013, when I went to CITES in Thailand, the value of a kilo of ivory we was selling for about $1,500 a kilo. Over the last 18 months, we've seen the price increase. And currently, through the EIA, a good friend of mine, Mary Rice, and investigations have been conducted in China, a kilo of ivory is selling for between five and $6,000 a kilo. So it just tells you how much that has appreciated in the last 18 months since the convention. When we're talking about rhino, a gram of rhino horn sells for between $2,500 to $3,000 a gram. It costs you more to buy a gram of rhino horn than it does to buy a gram of cocaine. So you can see that the money that's involved is not a small amount. It's huge. And for every one person that we catch in the bush, there's 10 people ready to go out in the bush. So we certainly need to look at long-term strategies and short-term strategies. And yes, it's great that we're trying to create awareness globally, especially in China. Famous film stars, Jackie Chan, Li Bingbing, basketball players like Yao Ming have been involved those are all long-term strategies to try and create awareness in China. And if you think back, China's appetite for ivory is not something that's new. It's deep-rooted. It goes back centuries. It's going to take a long time for us to change that culture and the demand for ivory. It's not going to happen overnight. But the question that one has to ask ourselves in our hearts is, do we wait for 15 years to change a culture? Because in 10 years' time, we may not have any elephants on the African continent. We may not have any rhinos on the African continent. We estimate there's just over 25,000 rhinos on the African continent. We're losing 1,000 plus a year right now. Do we think we'll have rhinos left in 10 years' time? Do we really believe that we'll have elephants left in Africa in 10 years' time? It's a question that we really need to ask ourselves and really question where are we going with the poaching crisis that has hit the African continent. You mentioned earlier that there is $10 billion, at least in the market, for a legal trade of animal products, including rhino horns, which, by the way, have been proven that they don't have any medicinal benefits. Absolutely. If you look back, there is no scientific or medical evidence to prove that the rhino horn has any medicinal value. I mean, if you look back at what is a rhino horn, for those who do not know, it's keratin. It's the same composition of that of your nail. So by grinding it down in water, it turns into a little sort of a milky content. It's like putting a teaspoon of milk in a glass of water. 
it doesn't cure anything. You know, it doesn't cure heart disease. It doesn't cure cancer. It doesn't help with impotence. It doesn't have any medical evidence to support the illegal trade and the demand from many countries like Vietnam and Southeast Asia. Here's an argument that I would like to share with you. In 2013, the South African private sector organizations presented a document at CITES wanting to legalize the trade in the rhino horn. You have a billion people in China. We have not looked at Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, Philippines. And suddenly you tell them that there is the possibility that rhino horns or carotene is going to cure cancer or heart disease or whatever their myths and beliefs are. Do you feel that 25,000 rhinos are going to fulfill the appetite from those countries? If you work out the maths, I certainly do not believe it. I have a background in accounting and finance, and I certainly do not believe that we can fulfill the demand. It all boils down to greed from farmers, individual businessmen, because they stand to gain a lot. And the second you legalize this, the price of a gram of rhino horn will shoot from between $2,500 to $3,000, will shoot up possibly to seven, dollars $8,000, because everybody will want it. Everybody believes that it's going to solve the problem. You're trying to make a myth come true, and it will only profit those that have the rhino stocks in South Africa, the game farms, those that are sitting with the rhino horn stocks in their strong rooms. They stand to make millions and billions, and it's all driven by greed. And we need to stop being greedy as a world. The biggest problem that we have in the world is us as humans because we're being very destructive. We have become our own enemies in this fight because we have been given opportunities to save and enjoy our wildlife. And there's other ways of saving and enjoying our wildlife. So do we really need to bring and decimate a species to extinction? Today in Africa, we have less than 1% of the rhino population left in the world compared to what was in Africa 20, 30 years ago. We're not even sure what is the exact figure of rhinos being held in private collections, in private reserves, and in the open in the plains of Namibia, Zimbabwe, Tanzania, Kenya. I know for a fact that, you know, if we ever legalize the rhino trade, we will not be able to protect them in in Tanzania and in Kenya. And we've seen evidence of that. And you're talking about storehouses. Tanzania has 134 tons. Just to give you an idea, we have 134 tons of ivory that's sitting in our strong rooms. And it's a very big question that we ask. And you've seen the ivory crush at the base of Eiffel Tower. You've seen the ivory crush in Denver. You've seen countries like Kenya, Gabon, burn the ivory stockpiles. Tanzania is in a dilemma as to what do we do with our ivory stockpile? Do we burn it? Obviously, burning is a symbolic factor. Ideally, you would have to crush it and grind it with an aggregate crusher. As you know, ivory doesn't burn very well. You need a thousand degrees of heat to really destroy ivory. Tanzania is at a junction right now and is trying to think, what do we do with our ivory stockpile? And that's a big question that we're all asking. A lot of people say just destroy it, dump it. But here is something that I want you to think about because this is something that we debate and talk about. And we don't have the solution. We don't have the answer. So please don't think that I'm trying to convince you on something. But there are criminal elements in China that are hoping for the species to be extinct in 10 years' time. And we've seen evidence. And that will drive the cost of ivory from $1,500 to five dollars and $6,000. So if we go ahead and destroy 134 tons of ivory that's sitting in our stockpiles, there's evidence that maybe Zimbabwe is sitting with about 55 tons of ivory. If we all go ahead and destroy our ivory stockpile, and if we lose our elephants in the 10 years, the speculators, the business community, the mafia, the triads, the organized crime syndicates in China who are speculating that ivory is going to become white gold, the word they use is white gold, you're going to suddenly find that a kilo of ivory is going to be selling for about $25,000 a kilo. So do we destroy our stockpile? Because they're going to say, great, wonderful, Tanzania just destroyed 134 tons of ivory. That means, you know, we can drive up the price from $6,000 to $8,000 now, and we'll keep the poaching crisis in Africa up. So these are all questions that one needs to ask oneself. 
what is the right thing to do? Do we store it? Do we keep it? Do we try and control it? People say sell it, but we've seen what happened to the ivory sale in 2008. 100 tons of ivory were sold in 2008. And in 2009, suddenly there was a spike in the ivory demand. And right now, we're losing elephants, approximately 30,000 elephants a year. That's a chronic situation. That's a huge problem. And one third of that 30,000 elephant actually comes from my country, Tanzania. We are at the forefront of this fight, and it's a very real fight for us in Tanzania. Our president, who's a great guy, our minister, Lazaro Nyalandu, is an incredible minister. We're seriously concerned of the flight of the African elephant, not just that of the species in Tanzania, but that of Africa. And this is not just a Tanzania problem, and we're sitting and concerned about what's happening on the African continent. We need to unite and solve and stop the crisis. And in my heart, the only one thing that I can believe is a, a global ban on ivory right now. And unless we get behind this ban and stop the trade and illegal killing of elephants, we will not succeed. Whilst we have the toll on the human life on the African continent, we have an elephant genocide taking place right now on the African continent. Let's go ahead and spotlight, Pratik, that 134 tons of ivory is equivalent to over 200,000 dead elephants. Roughly 134 tons is equivalent to 200,000 dead elephants. So it just gives you an idea how many dead elephants are sitting in our warehouse. Now, I'd like to talk about the people on the land, the people that you're looking for to try and stop. The poachers are militia groups who are selling the ivory to fund civil wars and genocide in the African continent. That makes this a global problem. Now, one thing I'd like to bring up is human life versus animal life. We're trying to bring awareness to animal life, life of an elephant. And the people that we're taking it back to are not even caring for human life. Let's talk about what you guys are doing to try to convert a poacher to see why this is so important, and to turn them into a ranger who's going to help take care of these animals. We have to look at the human side of this whole conflict because the illegal trade, not just in ivory or the illegal bushmeat market, we have a lot of minerals, resources in Africa. We have uranium, we have gas, we have oil, we have diamonds, we have gold, we have tanzanites. We have to look at the conflict and how militia groups, militant groups are using these mineral resources to fund their little genocides, their little wars. And it plays a very important, intricate role, not just for conservation, but for the stability of the world. For every one poacher that we catch, there's 10 or 20 guys waiting to go out. Because of financial incentive, the money that's involved is so far-fetched that you can't imagine. Unfortunately, the rangers and the guides in the field are underfunded under-resourced, under-uniformed. They don't have uniforms. They don't have shoes. They don't have food, basic necessities that you don't think about every day. These rangers put their lives out every single day to go and stop these poachers. And they're not just talking about stopping poachers. We've got people who are cutting down trees, timber that's been stripped through the West African forests, our hardwood in Tanzania and many parts of Africa are all being shipped out. So they're stripping our resources, they're stripping our country, they're stripping our self-respect. And eventually, you know, what happens? Are you going to make beggars out of Africa? because that's what's going to happen. So poachers play a very important role for us because we need them because they tell us who's sending them out there, who's buying from them, who's behind the illegal trade. They know the routes, the vehicles, individuals at all levels that are involved in the ivory trade. So they play a very important role. So it's very important when we catch a poacher that we work with them. We hope that we can convince him to get on board and become part of the conservation effort and look at the humanitarian side of things. In 2013, it was $1,500 for a kilo of ivory. In 2014, it's between five to $6,000 per kilogram of ivory. Now, poachers are making between five to $600 a kilogram. That's more money in one day than they would make in a year. Is that correct? 
That's true. If you think of Africa, you know, an average family of five lives on less than a dollar a day. Each evening, a parent will think which one of the parents is not going to have a meal so that they can feed their kids. So when they're being offered four, five hundred dollars a kilo of ivory, that's less than five percent of the value that would sell wholesale in China. That's a huge financial incentive. It's so financially rewarding for them. So even if they shot one elephant and say it weighed about 20 kilos, you're talking serious money for a poor African. So the financial incentive for them to go out is huge. And you can't deny the fact that, you know, when you think about your family that's living on less than a dollar a day, and then somebody walks into your backyard and says, listen, if you get me some ivory, I'll offer you $4,000 for 20 kilos or $8,000. So you can see where the incentive for them to go out and they will risk their lives. They will risk the lives of their wives, their kids, just so that they can make that money. And some of them will not come back home. In the process of going out there, may get shot, may get killed, may get killed by an elephant, not necessarily by the rangers. They put their lives at risk just so that they can feed their families. So you've got to look at the human side of things. These are innocent people who are forced, driven by the need to make some money to keep their families fed and are forced to go into there. Also bear in mind, militia groups will encourage these young people and force them to go out to go and poach. We've seen the child soldiers, young kids, age 12, being given AK-47s to go out. So they're scared for their life and they will do what they're told. And if they need to say, go shoot some animals so that we can fund our war or go to a mine, kill some people or force people into slavery. We talk about human trafficking. Well, you know, there is slavery going on in Africa, even today. A lot of people are forced to work in mines against their will by these militant and militia groups so that they can fund their wars and their genocides. The toll on the human population is huge, and we need to take this seriously. There's a lot of evidence. We've talked about it as a world, and we now need to unite together to solve the problem and fix the problem. You're talking about some of these children who are walking around with AK-47s. Now, the poachers are well-armed. They have really good technology, night vision, armor-piercing bullets, The Rangers also have AK-47s, but when it comes to the technology that you're facing and the fact that you're underfunded, that brings a couple of issues to the table. Not just a couple of issues. It becomes huge issues for keeping our guys motivated to go out in the bush. Not all our Rangers have AK-47s. You know, a lot of them carry a shotgun. A lot of them carry a bolt action 30 or 6 or a 30 or 8. When we are out there, if you look at the conflict in Somalia, if you look at the conflict in Sudan, if you look at the conflict in DRC, you've seen the conflict in Libya, Morocco. The illegal arms trade is huge. It's big business. It's a billion-dollar industry. And we have well-organized criminal elements involved in this trade. And you need to know, we're dealing with serious people. It's not just individuals that have suddenly been given a 30 or 6 and say, go shoot some elephants. They're very organized. They have night vision, armor-piercing bullets, sophisticated automatic weapons. And our poor rangers have to go up against these guys, and they put their lives to test every single day. So, yes, they're underfunded. Basic things like a uniform, a shirt, a trouser, a pair of socks, a pair of boots. A basic meal for us in the bush is beans and what you call in America grit. In South Africa, they call it millipap, and in Tanzania, we call it ugali. It's cornbread puffed up with hot water. This is a basic meal for us, and the guides, the rangers are working. They're putting their lives for a basic meal. So we want you to support us. Help us win this war. Africa as a continent is suffering. The world needs to take Africa seriously and stop this genocide and these militant groups operating in Africa because it's become a dumping ground. It's the next frontier in the world where they say, go to Africa because they're rich, they have all the minerals, they're dysfunctional, and they're taking advantage of some of these governments and destabilizing them for their own personal benefit and gain. Now, Pratik, what you do is very dangerous. Not only what you do and what the rangers do is dangerous, but poachers is also dangerous for them because you often have firefights between poachers and rangers. 
And ask yourself this question. If you're standing here in Missoula, Montana, and if somebody's shooting at you, what is your reaction going to be? You're going to shoot back. We're dealing with serious people. When they come to poach an elephant or an animal in Africa, they're coming well prepared. They're ready to take life. They have no respect for life. So if we're caught up in a situation, we have no choice. Without sounding inhumane, we have no choice but to engage and protect and defend ourselves. So yes, we will shoot back to defend ourselves. But saying that, we give every opportunity to try and arrest the individual and hopefully convert him and he becomes part of the conservation project. So it's not our policy to just go out and shoot people. It's our policy to actually try and get the person involved and convert him to become part of the conservation effort. By taking life does not solve the problem. Pratik, let's just be very clear that an elephant does not shed its tusks. It needs its tusks to live. And I believe that you went out into the bush and documented over 2,600 dead elephants. And now you cannot take any more photos. The elephant needs its ivory. And ivory only belongs on elephants. And I truly believe that in my heart. I've grown up in the bush and I've come from a hunting background and I've come from a photographic background. So I've been on both sides of the coin and there's no denial When I grew up as a young boy, I'm 45 years old, there was no photographic tourism in Africa. A lot of people came to hunt big game in Africa. Today, folks, those hunters out there, we only have 450,000 elephants out there. You cannot put a price or a value to that species. We may have isolated populations in certain big national parks in Botswana, some parts in Tanzania, some parts in Zimbabwe, but they do not speak for the flight of the elephant on the African continent. And if we do allow any form of trade in ivory or elephant through hunting, through any form, it's not going to solve the problem. The problem is huge. It's very complicated. It's very complex. It's not a short-term problem. We don't have short-term solutions. One would be ignorant to not address the problem. We do put our lives at stake every single day to go and protect our wildlife. The revenue that's coming through is not enough. You're talking at a $10 billion industry, yet tourism does not bring that kind of revenue into these national parks and reserves. We're dealing with a very sophisticated group of people, and they're out to kill, and they're going to destabilize the world, not just with ivory, not just with the illegal wildlife trade or in timber, but we've seen a lot of evidence right now. As you know, in China, they make wine out of tiger bones. They're running out of tigers right now. And we've seen a huge spike in the demand for lion bones and leopard bones. They make this expensive wine. There's a very affluent middle and upper class in China now. Their party is a bottle of tiger bone or lion bone. They will say tiger, but it could be lion. It sells for between five, $6,000 a bottle, up to seven, $8,000 a bottle. So we need to stop this trade. We need to stop the genocide, not just of elephants, but there's also human genocide. There's a human element. There's loss of life from both sides, government, Game scouts, rangers, and poachers, we need to unite and stop this problem. It's a global problem. You mentioned 400,000 elephants left. Comparing that figure to 5 to 10 million elephants in 1930, in 7 to 10 years we'll have no elephants left in Africa if we keep losing 35,000 elephants a year. Another word you used was the word corruption. Corruption is one of the biggest challenges in Africa. One issue that I've thought about a lot is the fact that some of the people who are out there and are fighting for the lives of the elephants and rhinos are needing to support their families. So to take a bribe, they're going to be better off to take care of their families. And you're absolutely right. The corruption is at all levels, not just in Tanzania, but on the African continent. We have corruption. We have militant groups that will come in, offer big money, and it's not small money, to the game rangers. So we've seen evidence in the past where right across Africa where game rangers, vets in South Africa that have been involved in the poaching of elephants and rhinos, and this is a reality. They will engage because the amount of money that's been offered is huge. Game rangers were initially involved in the poaching crisis 
Tanzania took a very proactive approach. A lot of people were removed from their position to resolve the problem and help stabilize our game reserves. And yes, corruption is a big culprit. We're in the studio with Pratik Patal, who is the founder of the African Wildlife Trust. We're going to return shortly and talk about what we can do to help. Pratik, let's play a song. You were born in 1969. That's right. I was born in 1969. So I love that song, Summer of 1969. <laughs> I would like to play that song. It's The Trail Has Traveled with Mandela. We are in the studio with Pratik Patel. Pratik is the founder of the African Wildlife Trust. We have been talking about some facts, trying to bring awareness to the fact that every year 25 to 35,000 elephants die in Africa. In Tanzania alone, 10,000 elephants die. If this figure keeps up, in 7 to 10 years there will be no elephants left in Africa. Back in the 1930s, there was a study done to find out there was about 5 to 10 million elephants in Africa. Today, there's around 400,000 elephants left in Africa. Pratik, let's talk about the fact that elephants only produce every seven years. So how many generations are being killed off if one mother is killed and she is pregnant? And that's something that I want you to all think about. Because if you look back at the gestation period of an elephant, it's 22 months. By the time she wins her young one, you're talking four, four and a half years. Then she's pregnant again for another 22 months. For every one elephant that we lost, it takes us seven years to replace a calf. Today, if we estimate between 450,000 elephants, it will take us 30 or 40 years just to try and double that figure of elephant population. So do we really have the time at the rate we're losing our elephants? The other thing that you want to ask yourself, the poachers have selectively gone after big bulls, then they've gone after big females, then they've gone after the young bulls, and then they've gone after the young females. Today, we end up with a lot of orphans in our game reserves, young adults, young sub-adults who are undisciplined, who become aggressive. We've seen cases where they do not know how to control. They rely on the matriarch to guide them, take them to the water holes in the dry season. In the wet season, they move to dispersal grounds where they have better grazing, better feeding. All these traditional corridors are lost. The knowledge has been lost. So you have all these young ones that are between four or five years old that have no parents to guide them and discipline them. We've also seen evidence of young males raping young females, and they get very aggressive. And it's like leaving a human child. If you leave a child that's not disciplined and has not been given guidance, you end up with a rebel. And that's what we're ending up with. There's a lot of young elephants who are growing up to become rebels, becoming very, very aggressive. And secondly, they've lost their corridors because they don't know where to go to feed. They do not know where to go to drink water. And eventually, they become traumatized. We are losing. On average, let me just tell you another figure. 40% of the females that we find in the bush are actually pregnant. So we're not just losing a present generation. We're losing a future generation of elephants. It's heartbreaking to see this when you go out on a patrol and you see pregnant females that are dead. I've had the opportunity to try and open one female to see if I could save the calf. And it was very sad because half an hour later I lost that calf. 40% of the females that are shot are pregnant females. So you're not just killing a present generation, you're killing a future generation. And for us to replace 450,000 elephants will take us 40, 50 years. That is if we can bring stability today in this game reserves in Africa. Otherwise, we have lost the genes, we are losing our elephants, and we will have nothing left to show the world. Thank you so much, Pratik, for coming to Montana and for coming on the trail less traveled and helping to bring awareness to this. 
Thank you all for taking the time to listen to me and thank you very much Mandela for inviting me to speak at your radio station. I'm really honored and it's a great privilege for me to be here. Help us save the African elephant and our wildlife. Help us by signing petitions. Go to your governors, your senators, your congressmen. We sign petitions. Help us make a difference. Join in. Follow us on social media through Facebook because it helps us stay alive. It helps us share our message with you. It helps you know what's happening in Africa. The conservation world is in desperation right now. Africa as a continent is in desperation to try and solve the problems, not just of the illegal wildlife trade, but the illegal arms trade, the illegal human trafficking trade, the illegal drug trade. So we have a huge problem. We want you to please support us. Share a message. Wear a T-shirt. I, in January, February, March, will be walking in 15 cities around Tanzania. I'll be walking through the Serengeti National Park for 18 days, through Central Serengeti National Park with my minister to Arusha. We are holding concerts promoting a local artists, engaging the public. We're engaging between 25 and 35 million people in Tanzania. Ivory only belongs on elephants. We need to show unity. We need to show the human side of our side. And we need to support Africa as a continent. And it's not just about Tanzania. It's not about Kenya. It's not about South Africa. It's Africa as a continent. We are going to be putting out a petition in the end of March asking for a global ban on ivory. And we need a billion signatures. And your signature will make a difference. It will take you less than two minutes to sign a petition with the signature. But your signature will make a difference. So please support us and join us in this fight. Please follow me on Pratik Patel, Facebook, the African Wildlife Trust, Facebook, Friends of Serengeti, so that you can support us and follow us. It is not just about Tanzania, it's about Africa, and we want your support, and you will make a difference. That one minute that you give us will make a huge difference in our lives in Africa, and your life as well. Wonderful. Like Pratik said, what can you do to help? We need to get a global ban on ivory. AfricanWildlifeTrust.org. Sign petitions. You can make a difference. Pratik, I'd like to end the show with three conservation tips. That's a very good one. When you go out in the bush, please be aware of your environment. And, you know, whilst you're enjoying nature reserves here in the U.S. or elsewhere in South America or Central America, just think about what it takes to keep those reserves sustainable and alive. Give it a moment and think about what it takes to keep those reserves alive. The second tip is think of a ranger that's out there. Not just in Africa, it could be in Borneo, it could be in South America, it could be in Central America, it could be in Africa, it could be here in the U.S. What it takes to keep those rangers motivated and disciplined and to keep them in the bush. In Africa, we need a shirt, we need a trouser, we need shoes, we need food. Support us. The third one that I will ask, please show your human side. We are blessed in this world. God has given us wildlife. Let us learn to appreciate it and respect it. So be aware of all those people that are abusing our resource, not just the wildlife. You're talking about the sharks, you're talking about pangolins, you're talking the orangutan, you're talking about the forests in South and Central America, you're talking about iconic species like the rhino, the elephant, the lion, the leopard in Africa. And also bear in mind what those people are doing to use these resources to make millions, to destabilize the world. These are some of the things that I want you to be aware of. Be respectful and give it a lot of thought and what it takes to enjoy what you're enjoying in your backyard. Pratik, what song would you like to end the show with? On a lighter note, you know, I was born in 69 and I gave a tribute to Freddie Mercury who was from Tanzania, but I would like to end up with a song from Dire Straits, Chicks for Free, you know? <laughs> so I grew up with that song. I love the fact money for nothing and chicks for free. As any young man growing up, and a lot of us grew up in the bush, you know, we didn't have access to lots of nice bars and ladies. Uh, so, you know, we were kind of deprived. So the whole idea of money for free and chicks for free kind of really caught my attention. So, Thank you, Mandela, for inviting me to speak here.
You've been listening to The Trail Less Traveled, the community source for adventure information and inspiration. I want to thank my guest for this week, Pratik Patal. Pratik is a third-generation Tanzanian who grew up playing in the African bush with friends such as Jane Goodall's son, Grub. Like many East Africans, he was sent to school in England for his education. Pratik's family has been involved in safari tourism and conservation in Tanzania for over four decades and have been directly affected by the poaching crisis. Pratik is the founder of the African Wildlife Trust. Pratik is promoting a deeper understanding of the endangered wildlife trafficking epidemic the world is facing. In 1930, a census was conducted and found between 5 to 10 million elephants roaming the jungles and plains on the continent of Africa. Now, less than 1% of that remain, approximately 450,000. Every year, 25 to 35,000 elephants are killed. If this does not change, within 7 to 10 years, there will be no elephants left on the continent of Africa. To find out more or to sign a petition for a global ban on ivory, you can visit AfricanWildlifeTrust.org. Find us on Facebook and take a look at TrailLessTraveled.net to view pictures, read biographies, podcast previous shows, and discover suggested links from all of the guests featured on The Trail Less Traveled. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled which aims to take its listener back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Every week, I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how the community can start adventuring in the same fashion. My adventure tip this week is to watch the sky. Flash floods may occur anytime thunderheads are in sight. Weather can change in the desert quite rapidly. Do not remain in arroyos, which can flood suddenly, becoming dangerous. That's it for this week, Missoula. But until next week, get out there and shred the gnar. Because the thing about the gnar is, it doesn't shred itself. <laughs>